Hey listeners, this is Dan. Welcome to the 110th episode of The Goods, a film podcast. I have Brian here with me. How you doing, Brian? Hey everybody. Glad to be back again. 110. It's a big one. You all heard us count down to the new year in our last episode, but this is our first recording taking place entirely in 2023. And I suppose I must admit, if you look behind the curtain, especially with the publishing date of 1230, that we actually did not record the last one on the gap between 1231 and 1-1 or the, the crossover. No, but we wanted to have it accessible for people in time. So yeah, good work with the turnaround. And we had some fun chat on the, the Discord about New Year's and, and what was going on with everyone. So thanks to, to all our friends out there. And anyone listening is welcome to join us on the Discord, which you can find at thegoodsfilmpodcast.com. We'd love to chat with you there. So today, Brian, we are going to be doing a couple things. First, we're going to be talking about the 1980 film Used Cars, directed by Robert Zemeckis. And afterwards, we're going to do a top five list. It's been... A bit of time since we did a top five list. I actually don't even remember what the last one was. It might have been the one we had Will on for. But we're going to be counting down our top five favorite Robert Zemeckis films, which, you know, it'll emerge that that he's a director that I think both of us like. And I know you in particular are quite fond of. So I think this will be fun. Right. When we did our top 100 films, he had quite a few on my list. So we'll break down. I think, Dan, you probably do as you usually do and have watched enough films to, you know, fill in your gaps in his filmography. So have you made yourself pretty familiar with his work? I have, yeah. So I did uh, hunker down in character, I suppose, to try and do my homework. And by my count, he has 21 solo directed feature-length films, and I was at something like nine prior to this week, but I did catch up with the the rest of them in the past week. So I have seen all 21 Robert Zemeckis films. Wow. Well, I guess I shouldn't be surprised at this point. My ranking is not going to be comprehensive. It's going to reflect what I've seen, which is probably about half of them. I got to look at the list. I would venture that it's more than half, to be honest. Yeah, it's not as daunting a task as Thanksgiving. No, I don't know if anything will ever be as big as Thanksgiving, but this was it was a special week. And I have to say it did increase my appreciation for Robert Zemeckis and his career arc. So. All right. Cool. Well, let's start by talking about Robert Zemeckis. So he is a popular a populist, perhaps, director known for making crowd-pleasing films that are kind of on the, the cutting edge of special effects and are usually like technically pretty well-made and really kind of leaning into high concepts, I would say. Many of his films utilize some high concept. I, I read a little bit about him this week, Brian, so uh, before I kind of 
give like a very brief bio and some of the things I find interesting about him. What are some of your high level Robert Zemeckis thoughts? So I haven't done all that much contextual research, but I really love Back to the Future. I think that came across in our top films discussion. The whole Back to the Future trilogy is highly rated. And what I know is that he has an appreciation for visual effects. Like, he's always trying to do something visually inventive in his films, and the effects are often like a crux of the whole thing. You know, it, it's kind of like the delivery vehicle the visual effects are a big part of. In Forrest Gump, you know, you've got all the historical footage that he is wandering through. Or in The Walk, like, the big gimmick is that he has recreated the Twin Towers. Right, yeah. I think you s start to see that around Back to the Future, which was his fourth film, which has some really interesting stuff in there. I guess it's more Back to the Future 2 when they have, like, the both Martys appearing on screen at the same time type stuff. Right, right. But there is lots of cool visual effects in Back to the Future. And then, obviously, with Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Basically, from that point on, I think every single one of his films, with maybe one or two exceptions afterwards, has some sort of signature visual effect around which the, the story builds. To the point that, like, for the whole 2000s, he was doing a thing where he made, like, his own micro-animation studio that was all about motion capture and 3D and being very invested in that idea. Yeah, that was, he produced even more than he directed, but he directed three mocap films from the, I think they were all in the, the 2000s. You had um, Polar Express from 2004, which briefly touched on in Thanksgiving. Uh, Beowulf from 2007, which we actually spent a lot of time talking about on the Discord this past week. One that you have some fond memories of. Yeah, I, I have a lot of thoughts about Beowulf 2007. And Christmas Carol from 2009, we discussed in a previous episode of The Goods. So I guess this actually isn't our first Zemeckis film. I was thinking it was, but we did talk about A Christmas Carol in our year two Christmas Carol coverage. Had you had a previous appreciation for Zemeckis? What spurred you to take on this filmography after you've done several others? Yeah, so I, I have watched and liked... Zemeckis films. I also know that uh, Forrest Gump in particular is, is a kind of contentious film, or at least one that I have a lot of complicated thoughts about, and I know that, that you really like. And so I've always thought of that as kind of like the, the entry point into his work as just this film that's like really interesting, but not necessarily to my eyes, like especially good or tasteful. And so I was just been curious, like, what does the rest of his work look like? So uh, this was a chance for me to kind of go a little deeper on that. But uh, one thing when I was researching him and, and catching up on his filmography, I learned about is I read about his early life. Um, I feel like a lot of directors grow up in artistic households. I mean, a lot of them are children of people in the film industry. And then he, the ones that are, and I feel like generally grow up in artistic house households, Zemeckis did not. Zemeckis grew up in like a blue collar, I think it was Chicago, I don't know, some big city household. 
and basically his parents were working all the time, had no time, no interest in artsy fartsy stuff. And he basically just loved movies and loved TV. And was like, you know, it would be great life is to go and make those things. And so he, he got himself into film school and he, he found himself like not very much at home with most of the other film students because they were all, you know, people who had grown up in artistic households. The specific anecdote I read is that he got kind of annoyed that every single other student was really into the French new wave at the time. And he just liked Hollywood studio films and uh, adventures and stuff. And he, he had no time for that artsy fartsy crap. <laughs> I like that. And I think you can see that in his filmography. It's very, very entertainment and spectacle oriented, you know? Yeah. And then you've got the walk, which is about a French performance artist. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> and the way that he got his foot in the door is like one of those legendary stories that you kind of hear about. Basically he was like, all right, I, I just want to make a damn movie. And he like barged into Steven Spielberg's office so this was like right when Steven Spielberg had had made it at first and he, he barged in there. He's like, look, I like what you're doing. I made the student film. I want you to watch it. I think I could be a, a great uh, Hollywood film director. And for whatever reason, this actually worked on, on Spielberg. He, he watched the student film. He liked it. He gave Zemeckis a chance. He actually gave Zemeckis multiple chances. So Steven Spielberg produced his first two movies, which are I Want to Hold Your Hand, which is a, it's a comedy about Beatlemania, and then Used Cars, the one we're going to be talking about today. And then the last one that Spielberg produced was Back to the Future, which obviously was a massive success. Um, and in between that, he made one film not produced by Spielberg, which was Romancing the Stone. But it's funny that Spielberg kept giving him chances because both I Want to Hold Your Hand and Used Cars financially flopped. That is pretty interesting. I know that I've seen lots of behind-the-scene pictures of Zemeckis and Bob Gale and Steven Spielberg around the Back to the Future set. Yeah. Yeah, Bob Gale, I'm glad you brought him up. So Bob Gale is the writer for Used Cars, as is relevant today, but he also um, has written a handful of other Zemeckis films. In fact, they went to film school at the same time and, and collaborated, and so... They were kind of like this creative partnership at first. So Bob Gale has credits on five different movies. It's I Want to Hold Your Hand, Use Cars, and the three Back to the Futures, which, you know, probably the Back to the Futures themselves were enough to make you a fortune. But he did write uh, the first two with, with Zemeckis, including the one we're going to be talking about today. So I think one interesting thing about both Zemeckis and... Spielberg is that they both tend to be like pretty loyal filmmakers in terms of the crew that they work with. So you'll see the same crew members on basically all of their films, or at least for like eras of their films. So, I mean, some famous ones are, of course, Zemeckis has frequently paired with Alan Silvestri, the, the composer whose Back to the Future score is is terrific. I really love that. It's one of my favorite to listen to. Just very exciting. Yep, that's what I was thinking of was Silvestri. And it's funny. I think Zemeckis has, to some extent, a kind of knockoff Steven Spielberg public reputation. Mm -hmm. Kind of like your working man's version of 
Steven Spielberg, maybe slightly hackier than than Steven Spielberg. I do think he kind of charted his own artistic path eventually. Like he went deep into the mocap stuff, which gave him his own identity, not necessarily the best identity, but gave him one. But and I also think of Silvestri as sort of like a uh, a lightweight version of John Williams, too. He similarly does typically like big romantic scores, just like John Williams does, you know? Right. Well, a couple thoughts on this is, yes, there are some directors you think of as having, like you said, a, a loyal personality and just sticking with the same kind of toolbox of creative professionals, this uh, slate that they put together. Like you said, Steven Spielberg has got John Williams as the composer and across the board, you know, he's got like editor Michael Kahn and he's got producers Frank Marshall and Kathleen Kennedy, you know, he's just a lot of the same people. Uh, Janusz Kaminski is the cinematographer. Yeah, that's the one I was going to bring up. But go ahead. Yeah. Other directors like Tim Burton, you know, is always working with the same actors come up again and again. But also he's got um, Oingo Boingo. What's his name? And his name is Elfman. Danny Elfman. Danny Elfman. That's it. <laughs> Took us a while to get there. So... As we were getting close to recording today, and I realized that Dan had done his Dan darndest and just watched all of the full filmography, I knew I had to fill in at least one gap, so it was down to whether I was going to watch Death Becomes Her, which is what I was leaning towards, but then he talked a little bit about Welcome to Marwin, and I'll have some more welcome to Marwin thoughts when we get to our our ranking. Uh, but that's the one I ended up watching just before we recorded today. And it's all about a man who has a dollhouse. Right. And that's what I was thinking about. And all the dolls are based on people that he knows. And so it's like, oh, this is, you know, not just Zemeckis, but like any director is working with this stable of personalities. Yes. Yeah. I have a lot of welcome to Marwin thoughts too. Um, so let's make sure we carve out some time to do that. Zemeckis, in addition to the ones that we brought up, he's also worked a lot with Dean Cundy, the cinematographer, who has also worked with Spielberg and John Carpenter. So he's he's been around, but he, he worked on um, all three Back to the Futures. He worked on Death Becomes Her. He worked on Romancing the Stone. He worked on Roger Rabbit. And then uh, he got a new one that kind of stuck with him, and that was Don Burgess. So most of the the ones after that, at least the live action ones, you know, including Forrest Gump, Castaway, and his later ones like Flight, and even as recently as Witches, I think Don Burgess worked with him. So yeah, definitely had his crew who's kind of stuck around with him. And also, both Zemeckis and Spielberg love Tom Hanks. Yes, yeah. So now off the top of my head, I'm trying to think of what the Zemeckis-Hanks pairings are. We got Castaway, of course, which is... Forrest Gump, you just said. Yeah, Forrest Gump, um, Polar Express. And Polar Express is just riddled with Hanks. Yeah, too many Hanks to count. Yeah. And then I think Spielberg has had more Hanks pairings, but... Oh, and also Pinocchio, right? Oh, good call. The new uh, 2022... Catastrophe, yeah. Breakout hit. <laughs> Just spoilers. Pinocchio would be my bottom one. Robert Zemeckis' filmography. 
I don't know if there's a surprise there if you've heard me talk about it in the past, though. <laughs> Any other kind of preliminary Zemeckis thoughts before we dive into our film at hand, and then we'll pivot back to a Zemeckis retrospective of sorts when we count down our top five Zemeckis films. Yeah, let's let's save them for the Zemeckrospective. Oh, I like that. That's good. Z- Z- I don't know. That wasn't perfect. No, it was good. But let's proceed. Zemeckrospective. That's good. So used cars... Comedy film, 1980, directed by Robert Zemeckis, written by Bob Gale and Robert Zemeckis. Weird movie, Brian. It's one of two rated R movies that Zemeckis has made. And it's it's a pretty, well, I was going to say hard R, a rough R. Yeah. It leans into its R rating. Yeah, there's there's some nudity and, and some profanity and some darkness. So I knew almost nothing about this movie Prior to selecting it, uh, the one thing I did know was an early Zemeckis film. And my friend Hunter from high school, he has recommended me a few movies over the years. And this was the third one of his that I brought to the pod. The first two movies I brought were 12 Monkeys and Repo Man. So it's been a bit since we talked about one of Hunter's recommendations. But I thought it would be an interesting one to, to pull out here in the new year. Yeah, I really liked both of those picks that Hunter brought to us, and so I was excited to check this one out. Yeah. So the premise of this movie is, like I said, it's it's kind of a comedy, but it's sort of like more than just a, a comedy. It's like an adventure story, an underdog adventure story. It stars Kurt Russell as Rudy Russo, and it has a few other interesting characters on here. Brian, were there any other people that that hopped out at you? Not to the point that I could name them, but I definitely recognize some of these actors. Uh, The guy who plays the big mechanic is in Spielberg's movie, Batteries Not Included, where that one has sentient robots. And he's like, I think he's also a mechanic and he fixes one of the robots when it's damaged. Okay. Also, a couple of these like minor actors or or they may even have big roles in this movie but they show up in back to the future in little roles oh interesting i didn't recognize any of those who who were those well i'm gonna point them out when we get to them sounds good so rudy is this is kurt russell so he works at the new deal used car lot in arizona and he has political aspirations he wants to run for state senate but he also like imagines himself at the White House a couple of times. You, you can see he, he, he wants to be a, a riser in the ranks of life. But it turns out that what he's currently doing is, is hawking clunkers here at the New Deal used car lot. And this is run by a guy named Luke Fuchs. So uh, this guy is Jack Warden. And he plays both Luke and his brother, who's going to be the main villain, named Roy Fuchs. So I thought that was fun. They had a a double role for this guy, Jack Warden, playing brothers. And so one thing we learn about Luke, the boss of the New Deal used car lot, is that he's got a bad heart. Like we see him clutching his chest a few times. Some of the other people who work here at this car lot are uh, Jeff and Jim. So Jeff, I think, is another salesman and Jim is the mechanic. Jeff is played by Garrett Graham, who I knew I recognized, but I wasn't sure from what. I think what I might have been thinking of is he was in the 
not especially good Tom Hanks movie, The Man with One Red Shoe. But I did some reading about this guy, and it turns out he's also the voice of The Critic in the TV show The Critic. Wait a second. I think he was a critic on the show The Critic. The main critic was John Lovett. Oh, it's like I could have sworn it was a famous comedian, not this guy. So this is a different character. You're right. It's Franklin Sherman. Okay, so he's one of the critics. Right. So, yeah, Jay Sherman, I think, is the main character. So maybe he's the brother or something. That makes more sense because I was I knew it was someone I recognized who was the critic. So I was really surprised by that. Okay, that makes a lot more sense. Right. And he shows up. He crosses over into The Simpsons a couple times. So right. Right. On which John Lovitz played many uh, prominent, you know, character roles. Yeah. But uh, another actor here in used cars that I recognized, um, Jack Warden. This was a guy whose face I knew. I couldn't have told you what it was from, but he is one of the jurors in 12 Angry Men. Really? He's one of the 12? Yeah. Oh. The the guy running both lots. Nice, nice. So yeah, this uh, this used car shop is right across the street from the much more upscale used car lot that's run by Luke's brother, Roy Fuchs, also played by Jack Warden, as mentioned. And there's definitely like a bit of rivalry going on there. As we know, Rudy has aspirations to political office. And so the movie opens with him asking Luke for a $10,000 uh, loan for his, his state Senate campaign which Luke agrees to do on on the promise that Rudy will look after the lot and make sure that that Roy doesn't get his clutches on it or anything like that. So Rudy agrees to do this. Meanwhile, Roy is, of course, scheming to get the lot from his brother on the other side of the street, because apparently there's this thing going on where they need some space to build a freeway in so that he can get more business to his shop. And the only way he can do it is by getting this, this used car lot. It's like eighties villain one Oh one stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So many eighties movies, the land developers are the bad guys who the underdogs are trying to fight off. It's like the Goonies formula. And I mean, it, it comes up a lot. Same thing is going on in Batteries Not Included. One of the Beach Parties movies, which is the 60s, has this exact premise, too, where the landowner wants to get the beach that all the teens are surfing on. So I guess that's one of the stock movie plots. Yeah, it's like the, the people in suits who are cramping the style of the more esoteric types. And so Roy comes up with this scheme where he's going to give his brother a heart attack. And what he does is he hires this stunt driver. I think he's like a demolition derby driver to drive a car, a test drive, but like drive it really crazy. And this does indeed work. So we get this whole set piece where he's driving around the car all crazy, like making it do barrel rolls and swerving around traffic. And just when they get back to the car lot, he has his heart attack and dies. So... This is before Rudy got lent his $10,000, but nonetheless, Rudy agrees to, to fulfill his promise of protecting the, the lot. And he immediately suspects foul play by Roy. And so he knows that if this death gets reported right away, that Roy is going to get the, the lot. 
so what he comes up with is this crazy scheme where he digs this huge hole in the ground, buries Luke in his car, and puts like coins over his eyes. It's like a funeral type thing, and then buries him with dirt. So he's like literally under the used car lot. Really dark thing here. Yeah, so I think I think where it is is like, you know, auto shops have a pit that that you can go down into so you can service the car from underneath. So it's like that's where they put the car and then filled it in with dirt. Gotcha. Yeah. Um so I, I thought that was was a pretty funny image. I I kind of enjoyed when this when this movie leaned into the more outrageous black comedy kind of tasteless stuff. I thought it was kind of fun when it did that, even if it was kind of ludicrous. Yeah, I agree. Their plan. So now we have Rudy, who's scheming with the other two employees, who are Jim, the mechanic, and then Jeff, who's paranoid and superstitious, to basically to try and hide the fact that Luke is dead. The, you know, the owner of the, the place is dead. And they, they concoct this idea. And here's their idea. is basically, all right, if they do in the name of the lot anything that is illegal, anything bad that would get the business in trouble then that would be pinnable on Luke. But Luke is dead, just that nobody knows it yet. So, you know, they would be hunting down Luke. And in the meantime, they can do whatever they want and and get away with it because the person who actually has to face the consequences is is dead and buried. So they decide that basically they're going to run the shop and they're going to do these crazy stunts to get attention and Rudy still has the goal of getting his $10,000 so he can run for, for state senate. I wonder how legally sound this reasoning is. I feel like it is not. I, I don't think that you can, like, break any law that you want in the name of the business and face no consequences from it. Right. I feel like if the legally responsible party is dead, somebody is still going to have to answer for what gets done. And even if you think about like famous cases where someone did something as a business worker, it's not just that the owner of the business gets tried. They do get tried if they're in on the, you know, if it's a conspiracy and they knew what was going on. But like the person who did the bad thing also faces penalties, also gets arrested and fined and all that. So, right. Funny idea for a story. I agree with you. I We should maybe phone in a lawyer before running this one ourselves, Brian. <laughs> okay. But... Things get more complicated when who should roll into town, but Luke's beautiful estranged daughter is this woman named Barbara, and she is played by an actress named Deborah Harmon, who I don't think I recognize from anything else. Did you recognize her, Brian? I was trying to place her. Apparently, she plays the reporter, the news anchor at the start of Back to the Future. Uh who's reporting on that plutonium has been stolen. So now, of course, Rudy immediately falls for the beautiful woman. But things are real hairy now because they don't want to reveal to Barbara that her father is dead. And they also want to continue to to get money. And also Rudy wants to date Barbara. And so those things are kind of all colliding. And so now we kind of hit the promise of the premise which is Rudy and his crew doing the, these schemes with reckless abandon to try and get more money while he's trying to fend off Roy and also concealing it all from Barbara. And so a couple of the stunts they pull 
One of them is they actually hijack a TV signal multiple times. This plot point is used twice in this movie. Yes, so they rope in Lenny and Squiggy, the goofy sidekicks from Laverne and Shirley, to perform signal intrusion broadcasts. And, you know, I love a good signal intrusion. We talked about it on the Repo Man episode. And what I thought was interesting was this was all the way back in 1980. So, like, years before the Max Headroom incident. Was that Repo Man or was that They Live? Or was it both? Oh, it was They Live. Gotcha. Did he, did your friend recommend They Live? Or no, that was Will. Will, yeah. Okay. Well, I clumped it in my brain. In the same spirit, though. Yeah. Yeah, that they're, you know, uh, counter culture. What do they call them? It's the cult hits. Yeah. Uh, 80s cult hits. So lumped it together. But that happened in 1987. That's interesting. Yeah. So the first one they hijack is a TV signal for a football game. And they run this live commercial where they're just they have a a beautiful woman and they're going to talk about the car shop. But it goes really bad because it turns out Jeff who's the the other salesman, one of his things is he doesn't like red cars. And this is going to come up multiple times. He thinks they're cursed or something like that. And so he learns that the car is red and then he starts freaking out. And, and I guess he, I don't even remember what it is. He like turns on the car or something like that. And then like the beautiful eye candy woman who's supposed to be there, her, her dress gets caught in the car and comes ripped off. So they have nudity on, on live TV there. But it's fine because it's... Luke's problem, I guess. <laughs> um, another one is they hire a bunch of strippers to perform like dances on the cars, which gets all the, the you know, the dads who were hoping to buy used cars from Roy's lot over to Luke's now Rudy's lot to, to gawk at the women. So this was a few scenes in a row that uh, didn't skimp on the nudity. Another one and this is kind of like the culminating one is they use a microwave dish to interrupt the state of the union. So it's, I guess it's Carter is the president and they explain they're going to use microwaves to do it. I think it's supposed to be nationally broadcast. I'm pretty sure you like can't do what they say that you can do. Like you just have this dish and then everyone over the entire country sees yours. Right. Well, they mentioned that they're going to interfere with the satellite. So this is a 1980 film. So pretty early in like the cable era and stuff. So I don't know. Probably you couldn't do it the way they do it. But it's, you know, early. Like I said, years before the Max Headroom pirate broadcast. So it was the Wild West in some regards. And they have these two guys, these Lenny and Squiggy who know how to do it. And so they recruit them. So I thought this was going to be the rest of the movie. Just one little thing after another. So I thought that like five times in this film, something would change. And then I think, okay, this is going to be the rest of the movie. (laughs) Really? But then no, something new would like change the genre. Yeah. It would just be like a whole different kind of movie. Right. That does happen a couple times. What were some of the other, like, turning points? Oh, well, we'll get there soon. Okay, yeah. We're barely past the halfway point when things take a turn. So Roy discovers Luke's buried car casket thing, and he brings the police there the next day. But Rudy, Jeff, and Jim are one step ahead of them, and they stage a grand return for Luke. 
they put his corpse in the driver's seat. They put a brick on the accelerator, pour gasoline all over his car and have him crash into a electricity transformer, causing a fiery explosion. And I guess the idea is that because all of the crimes thus far had been pinned on him, when he dies in this explosion with witnesses all around and no suspected foul play, I guess, that all of those previous charges disappear. You know, it's not on the guys who actually intruded on the signal. It was all on Luke. But now it would appear that Rudy is going to get away scot-free here. But of course, just at the finish line, there is a hiccup. And that is that Barbara has discovered by listening back to one of his phone messages the truth about Luke from the start. And so when she immediately is the one who inherits the used car lot, she decides to dump Rudy and then fire all the workers and try to run the business, run it straight herself. So now it's going to be Barbara's and Rudy. When it appeared that he was going to have everything work out, is thrown back into needing several thousand dollars more before he can... I guess he's still trying to run for state Senate to that $10,000 keeps popping up. Right. So Rudy lives in an RV and now I guess so do these two other dudes from the lot, (laughs) Jim and Jeff. Uh, But Rudy has a safe that he's got all his cash piled in, just jammed in. I, I liked his fridge. His fridge has nothing in it but cores and celery. I didn't notice that. That's pretty funny. He has like a whole big pile of celery and loose cores cans. That's good. And in amidst that is this safe full of loose bills. Yeah. And he decides he's going to bet all of his money on a football game. So Jeff gives him a tip. His tip is that he needs to put all of his money on Denver. It's going to be a football game bet. He gives this explanation that Denver is number 10, which, first of all, you don't have rankings in pro football. And Denver is a pro football team, not a college football team. But then the reason that he thinks it's number 10 is because he found a dime, which I thought was funny. So what does Rudy do? He immediately goes and bets on the opposite team. And at first, it seems like Jeff is going to be right. But then at the last minute, Kansas City wins. Okay, so you're selling this scene short, Dan. Okay, tell me more about it. This scene boosted my rating of the whole movie because going into it, Jeff, the superstitious one, is putting his juju behind this one team. But then suddenly he learns that Rudy has gone and bet for the other team. So Jeff needs every possible bad luck thing to happen to him so that fate leans against him and towards Rudy so that Rudy can have the money. And somehow this magical thinking starts making the team that Rudy needs to win, win. And Jeff is running around the bar, (laughs) shaking every salt shaker behind him. He like runs and he finds a ladder and dives under the ladder. And then the big climactic moment is he picks up a bar stool and hurls it all the way across the bar to smash a big mirror. And each time he does one of these things, I guess the Kansas team, whichever team he's now pushing for, does a little bit better. And it was really well put together. I was like, my mind was blown a little bit. Nice. It was like suddenly the production values jumped and I was swept away. I was not expecting this like Gabriel Garcia Marquez magical realism all of a sudden. (laughs) 
Yeah. I was trying to think what it made me think of. Like the the sense of reality. It would just kind of sometimes it would be a, a button down comedy, sitcomy style. And then other times it would be this totally over the top thing. What that style was making me think of. I'm not sure I could place it, but I definitely was getting a kick out of it. So now it, again, it looks like Rudy is has made it because he's he won the big bet thanks to the manipulation of fate by Jeff. But alas, something goes wrong again, although this time it's it's not impacting him directly. So Roy has sabotaged Barbara, who now owns the other lot, by altering the tape of a commercial that she made. And she's like real awkward in front of a camera. Clearly, she doesn't have the the same car hawking jeans that her dad had and her uncle has. But she stutters through the word style and mile. And Roy and his team manipulate the footage to make it sound like she has instead of style of car, it's mile of cars. So now she's putting out a commercial there that says, come see our mile of cars. And immediately everybody, when this commercial plays, everybody ears perks up and says, mile of cars. There's no way she has that many cars. She's going to be arrested for false advertising. Even though, I mean, I guess we, we are to understand that this town, this jurisdiction of law <laughs> enforcement comes down really hard on false advertising. I I guess we just didn't see it before because Luke was evading justice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's kind of funny because it's like they've been doing the most outrageous marketing schemes. Nude women on live TV interrupting the president's speech. And they just completely got away without consequence. Now they use what to me seems to be a pretty harmless turn of phrase, mile of cars. And immediately, like, they're putting the cuffs on her and throwing her into local jail and bringing her to in front of the judge the next day. Right. Calling the hanging judge. Yeah. <laughs> so when when Rudy hears this, he decides that, you know what? He's going to make things right with her. And so what he does is he spends all the money he just won on the big bet. And he goes and buys this big batch of cars from this junk dealer who we had seen in the very first scene of the movie, who had basically like offered him these cars that just had like a thin layer of paint, but were like old taxis and stuff, really beat up cars. And um, he offers the gambling fortune he just had for all 253, I think it was, of those cars. And the idea is that for them to claim that it's a mile of cars, if you were to line up every car front to back, it needs to to span one mile to the inch. No, no less. So they're going to get all 250 cars and the judge agrees to measure these cars to determine whether she's guilty of false advertising or not. So they have this whole team of car measures out there ready to, to measure the cars. Yeah. So there's a couple beats here where it's briefly like a courtroom drama. Everybody is assembled in the courtroom and the judge comes out and in like a weird, my cousin Vinny connection, or maybe foreshadowing. Cause this was before my cousin Vinny, the judge is played by Grandpa Munster, not Herman oh. Munster. This is Al Lewis, who was 
Fred Gwynn's comic foil in actually a couple sitcoms because they were in Car 54, Where Are You? before The Munsters. But it's it's Al Lewis as the judge. Oh, interesting. I thought he looked familiar, but I had not placed that. But now that I, I'm pulling up a picture of Al Lewis, for sure, he's he's Grandpa Munster. And so they both make their cases and the judge says, we're going to recess briefly and then we're all going to reconvene at the car lot so we can measure this mile of cars. And that gives this little window of time where this group of scrappy underdogs can race across the county to this junkyard and get this whole caravan of clunkers. And they're going to have to tear across the county and get to this lot to compose the mile of cars. It like brings together all these minor characters that we've met throughout the film because one of the people who bought a used car from Rudy along the way is this school teacher who's responsible for the driver's ed class at the high school. He like tried to unload a bunch of junk cars onto this guy like previously he'd done this and whatever he had sold him before didn't end up working and so he's like you owe me driver's ed cars and rudy says well bring all your students to the junkyard (laughs) and they can all get their lessons at once more lessons should start with bring all your students to the junkyard and we'll figure it out from there (laughs) so yeah we have now we have this this new set piece totally different from anything else we've seen really out there that now the movie is basically being a Western at this point, like a, cause they're racing through Arizona, you know, Monument Valley. I don't know if it's actually Monument Valley uh, where many famous Westerns were shot. These cars and the score all of a sudden changes to like this Western style. Yeah. Suddenly it's like Mad Max or maybe foreshadowing a back to the future three. Yeah. Yeah. And there's this stuff where now Roy is interfering and he's trying to shoot a car. Pretty fun and pretty wild. And it goes on way longer than I expected. It's like a 15 minute set piece or something like that. Right. I was really impressed by the choreography of this fleet of cars. I mean, so I don't even remember what movie it was. I I watched some World War II movie recently. And, you know, there's a scene where there's like a hundred bombers flying over a city. And I was just thinking about how you never see like a bunch of planes all at once. And of course, in the movie that I was watching, it was all just CGI, you know, CGI, a hundred planes there. But here you've got, you know, it may be not 250, like they say, but like at least a hundred cars driving, just tearing across this plane in formation. And you know that they're all real vehicles. Yeah. To me, this was the most zemeckis set piece here. It's like parts of this you might not recognize the Zemeckis DNA, but this one definitely like the, the impressive technical precision, you know, it's not quite James Cameron esque, but it's, it's definitely uh, impressive. Like all the things that needed to be coordinated just right to pull off this, this set piece, this effect. Right. And the student who is driving with the driver's ed teacher in her car is Marty's sister from back to the future. Huh? Marty's sister. She's just in it early on. She's, I mean, she's one of the ones that it's like you see her when it's setting up that the family's not doing too well. And then later on, you see her when the family is doing well. 
Interesting. Okay. Yeah. You know, his brother who works at Burger King says, hey, somebody called for you, some guy, Greg or Craig or something. And she says, well, which is it, Greg or Craig? Okay. Yeah. I've seen Back to the Future so many times. Wendy Jo Sperber. That's right. I think is her name. And she was also in I Want to Hold Your Hand, which was the first Zemeckis movie. Oh. So the fleet of cars does make it into the lot before the judge gets there. And so they're measuring all of them. But it turns out they're 18 feet short there, which they estimate to be one car short. And the last car, of course, is driven by Jeff, who we know is paranoid. And there's been the running bit where he hates red cars. He's nervous about red cars. And there's been the running bit where the cars are shoddily repainted. So these things kind of come together in this really nice payoff where they like drive past. I forget even what kind of vehicle it was, but something that sprayed them. And it sprayed off just enough of car that you could see that it was like a red fire department car underneath, which Jeff doesn't see at first. But as soon as he sees it, he starts freaking out and he has to overcome it and rush back to the used car lot, which he does. But the moment that he does it, there's another there's a train coming by. So we get another cool little stunt here that I was not expecting, which is that he uses this ramp from one of those trucks that stocks a whole bunch of cars that can that can store a whole bunch of cars on it. He uses that as a ramp and he drives the car over the moving train, which that's a very impressive stunt to pull off. I was very impressed, especially for like, you know. Not the highest budget. I mean, it must have had some budget, but I thought it was a, a cool piece of uh, stunt work here. Yeah. Like, I, I wasn't expecting this big action, this jump. Right, right. That was pretty fun. And so he gets it there just in time and gets just enough to his mile of cars that the judge dismisses the case. I like he uses one of the cars as a gavel and he dismisses it on the spot right there. And they're cheering. Very 80s movie ending. And Barbara, Jeff, Jim, and Rudy decide that they're going to run the used car lot together going forward. I guess, I, I don't know if we ever learned what came of Rudy's political aspirations. I don't think we did. But it seems perhaps he's put them off for now and he and they're going to be running the car lot. And I think, I, don't, I didn't quite understand the end, but there was like an implication that either they were going to get Roy's lot or like Roy's lot was now under question or something like that. Were you following that? Well, I, I don't know about what's going to happen to his lot, but Roy got jailed at least briefly for contempt of court because he was like swearing at the judge. Right. And yeah, the judge put him in contempt, but I don't think that alone would be enough to lose the lot. But what this whole thing had me thinking of was the arc of this movie is like identical to UHF from 1989. Uh, there are other movies like this too. Like we said, it's a very 80s setup where you've got like a group of scrappy underdogs and then they've got some rival that is like the more effective, more successful version of whatever business they happen to be in. In UHF, it's television stations. So they've got like their public access station up against a network affiliate but this this happens again and again in 80s movies. Another one I was thinking of is called Joysticks, which is the most 80s movie I've ever seen. It's about this group of underdogs running an arcade during the height of Pac-Man fever. And 
you know, there's raunchy antics and stuff and just anything that you could imagine in an 80s movie is in joysticks. But in UHF, I just kept seeing shared beats like even the plot line of like there's this big debt owed to a gangster. And so the third act, they're all working to, you know, cobble together just enough money and then like five minutes from the end oh we're just a little bit short we need that last push and it's like all these little characters from the community who we've seen briefly they all end up together at the end and they're all chipping in their little bit of community support financial support and like the the villain arrives to gloat but then something happens that lays him low and he like gets led away at the end uh very similar that's cool yeah and we talked about UHF in our top 100 movies countdown, Brian. Right. I had it at my number one. Yeah. So that's how Used Cars from 1980, Robert Zemeckis' second film, ends. So, Brian, any other uh, used car thoughts you want to throw out there? Good things, not so good things, observations? Yeah, I do have something. So usually in these underdog stories, we sympathize with the underdog characters. And I was wondering, Dan, are our protagonists in used cars sympathetic? They, (laughs) it's a really good question uh, because the answer is yes and no. I mean, they're running the underdog and it's clear that the Roy picking on them, you know, he's, he doesn't even seem to care that his brother died. He's clearly like a commercial dude and Rudy at least has some loyalty to Jeff and to the lot. And even if he's acting in self-interest, the things he's doing are still to like improve the sales and the the success of the New Deal used car lot. Okay, sure. But their business is cheating people, lying to people. Selling faulty goods under false pretenses. That's the flip side of it. Also, like, they don't really seem to care that their boss died. They buried him, and then they incinerated his corpse in order to get away from all the crimes that they have committed. So it's definitely uh, a dark satire, a a, a black comedy. Right. I I was also surprised that Barbara eventually welcomed them back with open arms, I mean, I guess they are helping her business, but they also defiled her father's corpse multiple times. Yeah. I was wondering if it was going to do the the Dumb and Dumber ending, where it's like, it looks like it's going to be a dramatic reunion. And then she's like, no, you're a terrible. I'm not interested. And then they the good, the quote unquote good guys march off. But it, no, it went the route. You like, cause there's a beat where she like, essentially breaks bad where she who has been like the nice girl so she's from a hippie commune so she's supposed to be like all about treating others with kindness and stuff and it's presented as a moment of triumph when she can finally lie her way through selling a car which i thought was pretty funny yeah she decides she's gonna roll around in the dirt with them but what about you brian (laughs) how are you feeling about them i was pretty down on them most of the movie Ultimately, what saves it for me, saves the film's rating, is not going to be their moral scruples. Gotcha. It's going to be something other than that that boosts it for me. Random aside for me, Kurt Russell here, 
his energy was really reminding me, and to some extent his look was really reminding me of Paul Rudd. I don't know if you got any of that. Oh, interesting. You've probably seen more Paul Rudd films than I have, but I can see that. I think he would be good in a remake. Yeah. One other, this is like really out there connection. So I've seen one other movie that's a comedy about a used car place where it's a bunch of not especially likable underdogs trying to boost sales with dubious tactics. Do you know what the name of that movie is, Brian? I don't. It is called The Goods. There's a comedy from 2009 called The Goods Live Hard, Sell Hard, starring Jeremy Piven. That has some overlap with this. Wow. I didn't realize you had watched that. I have not watched it. I just know that if you Google The Goods movie reviews, that's all that comes up. <laughs> pages and pages of reviews for the movie called The Goods. One of my dreams is one day that my review site or our podcast will overtake the goods film from 2009 when you search for the goods reviews or the goods podcast. Yeah. I think if you do the goods podcast, you get us, but yeah, if you do the goods movie or the goods movie reviews, it's definitely coming up above your site so far. The goods podcast. Well, if you do the goods podcast, it brings up a different goods podcast, but we're point number two on that. Okay. Interesting. We're getting there. Yeah, we'll, we'll get there eventually. Watch your back, Jeremy Piven. <laughs> yeah, I for some reason, I thought this was going to be more of like a hangout comedy or like, I don't know, less genre-y than it is. And I did watch the film that came before this in Zemeckis' filmography, which is I Want to Hold Your Hand before I watched this one. And I do think that that one is a little bit more loose in its structure. The structure of that one, which follows this group of teenage girls that are trying to break into the Ed Sullivan premiere of the Beatles and get a front row seat there. But it just kind of follows them throughout the day as they try to do it. And it's a little bit more loosely structured than this. Um, I was kind of expecting a little bit more of that. So I was just surprised that it lived up to all of the potential 80s cliches that you could could have thought of but any anything else before we throw a rating on this one and move to our top five zemeckis films segment brian yeah i think i'm ready to rate all right so is it good is our signature section where we each give the movie a rating on our eight point goodness scale ranging from very not good which is a one out of eight to our masterpiece rating toward a good which is an eight out of eight so brian is used cars the 1980 film by Robert Zemeckis. Good. So for a lot of it, I was hovering at five good, mostly because I can't give a super low rating to any movie that hinges on a signal intrusion. I don't know why. I really like the idea of breaking in to establish TV with your own TV signal. And, you know, it happens not once but twice here. Also, there's a signal intrusion in UHF. I am not super fond of these characters, at least. I don't know. I, I, Their irreverence is admirable in the sense that, you know, they're doing something new. Something that is outside the norm to grab eyeballs. But they are just... They're pretty unscrupulous, pretty on 
principled in terms of like, their whole business is cheating people and lying to people to get them to buy these cars that don't work the way they say they do, which is pretty reprehensible. But the movie was elevated for me like twice. Tears. It rose abruptly a couple times. First, when it was suddenly the courtroom drama with Grandpa Munster. It's like, oh, we're doing a Cousin Vinny thing. This is kind of cool. And then suddenly they're racing across the desert with this whole flotilla of lemons. <laughs> and it's like, this took some thought. You know, this took some craftsmanship. They really had to marshal a lot of people and a lot of talents to accomplish this and bring it to the screen. So it ultimately arrives in six out of eight very good territory for me. So not as high as the other Hunter picks so far, which I both gave sevens to, but I did end up enjoying it by the end. Hunter's streak is alive of, of movies that Brian digs. Yeah. So what about you, Dan? Where did it land for you? Well, first of all, Flotilla of Lemons is, is a potential episode title for this. I got to say, I like that turn of phrase. Yeah. For me, I, I was floating around the five, six line for, for most of the movie. I laughed really hard a few times, but I laughed a lot more in the first half than the second half. So it's interesting. I'm not saying it actually went down a tier because I enjoyed and admired the shifts that it did, but I just didn't find it quite as funny there. I thought like they're kind of the way that they were running this really sleazy business just had a lot of like when things would go wrong, it was, it was always like sort of anarchic and kind of funny. And just lots of good lines with pretty good deliveries. I thought Garrett Graham as Jeff was the funniest performance here. I thought he was really good. And then, you know, in the second half, it gets more ambitious and it breaks its genre mold a little bit, like you were saying. I'm going to land uh, kind of, a, like I said, right on the, the fence between the two of them. But I'm going to give this one a five, a good for used cars. I do think it's a good and entertaining movie. And it's probably right around the middle of my Zemeckis ranking. And it's it's a fun time, but ultimately, like, not one that I'm going to be, you know, racing to go go watch again, I guess. Mm -hmm. I did like the Jeff actor as well. I was surprised that I haven't seen him in more things. So that is used cars, Brian. And now I think we are going to try to pivot to our top five Robert Zemeckis movies. We're going to Jeremy pivot. <laughs> so listeners, tune in soon for our top five Robert Zemeckis films.